0: Yeah, like I said, I was going to start. I was going to do this more chronologically, um, and I could do do some of that off the top of my head. But I thought it better to look at Ann Steele um, and just go ahead and look at her today. The, the reason I wanted to do it chronologically is because I really see kind of the history of hymnody as kind of this stream that keeps getting different tributaries feeding into it. Um, you know, one of the best one of the best ways to see that is just to look at a hymnal, especially a a modern hymnal because they're just filled with hymns from all you know, different centuries, especially in the late 19th century, there was much more interest in medieval hymns, Latin and Greek hymns from you know, even before the Middle Ages. So the hymnals now really do have a pretty, pretty good representation of the various centuries. A um, couple of resources if you want to study hymns that I always recommend. One is great on hymn writers and their background. I'm so glad this came out because it just, it just came out last year. It's called Our Hymn Writers and Their Hymns by Faith Cook. Uh, I've written some, read some other books by her. She writes a lot of books about church history, but she's very... It's, it's popular, but good scholarship behind it. And um, basically, a lot of the songs that we sing in RUF, those are the hymn writers she talks about and hits most of the major ones. And um, so I really, I really think that's good. She's got cool pictures, like first edition of Watts' hymns. There's a guy, um, Lewis Benson... All of his books are out of print, and they tend to be a little pricey Mm -hmm. on the internet now, but if you can find any of Lewis Benson's, he has two books called Studies in Hymnology, or Studies in Hymns, Hymns, first series and second series. Um, They're hard to find on the internet, but if you can find them, they're great. And they're completely different books, first series and second series. Uh, And they're basically a column that he wrote for a Presbyterian denominational magazine for a while. Um, That came out in the 1920s. They're really great. and then there's this other book, if you're, if you're bent is more English, this guy is an English professor, English an English-English professor, and this is the only book that really looks at the hymn as a literary genre, and it's really, it's really great, um, because he'll take various hymn writers and he'll talk about what are characteristics of their literary style. So, you know, what, how is Isaac Watts different from Charles Wesley, and how does Horatius Bonar different than either of them, and what's James Montgomery like, and how are Ann Steele's hymns? He's got a thing on Ann Steele here. Um, you can see it's one of these books that you know, I highlighted all over the place and turned over every page, because it was really great. Except when he gets to Victorian hymns in the 19th century, there's such a slew of hymns and hymn writers that he decides to, basically, it's very bizarre, but he takes Darwin's Origin of Species, he takes the se- chapter headings from that book, and he organizes the material under that because it was a very significant book that came out in 1859. Um, but it's kind of bizarre, and he doesn't really focus on particular people anymore. So that, that section of this book isn't really that helpful, I don't think. But the rest of the book's excellent. So if you can find Anne Steele's hymns, this is, this is an edition of it that came out in the late 60s in England. Sometimes I find it. Um, and then there's a new little book called In Trouble and Joy, and I put this at the bottom of the thing. So... Um, and a couple books that are hymns. These are just hymn texts. One is um, William Gadsby's uh, Gadsby Sam's The other is Spurgeon. You guys might have heard Charles Spurgeon. This is his hymn book that he put together. And um, it's great. It has over a 1,000 texts, and they're just the word. So the best way to study hymns is to actually read them and not just talk about them. All right. So without further ado, Anne Steele. Anne Steele. I actually have a version of this lecture at Clifton Baptist Church up in Louisville, Kentucky, online that will probably be more, better done than today because I had more time and I had been thinking about it and preparing it all week and had read all of Ann Steele's hymns during that week over again just to get into this. Okay, so Ann Steele is an important lady. She's the first significant female hymn writer. She, in, in a lot of regards, is, is, is seen as the most important, um, prolific... Baptist hymn writer, and yet her hymns have pretty much completely dropped out of use. It wasn't always that way. Her hymns crossed denominational lines quicker than Isaac Watts' hymns or Charles Wesley's hymns, um, and more thoroughly. And she was, she's, grew up 20 miles away from Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts is a really important guy, because Isaac Watts is the one who basically restores hymn singing to English-speaking people. In, um, in the Calvinist tradition, um, in Switzerland under John Calvin, and then in Scotland under John Knox, and then Knox's influence as it spreads to England, they um, come to believe for the most part that you should only sing psalms, not hymns. Though the first hymn book produced in England was a, was a hymn book, it was before the idea of psalms only came into being. But once Calvin and Knox's influence extended into the English Reformation, English-speaking people and French-speaking Reformed people didn't sing hymns. They did, however, sing hymns in the Reformed churches in Germany. I don't know if you know this, but Germany has places that are Reformed, places that are Lutheran. And the, the German Reformed church, even from the 1500s, sings hymns and continues to sing hymns. So, um, but Isaac Watts in the 1700s Um, which is basically 200 years after the Reformation comes to England, is at church one day. He's about y'all's age. He was 19. And was just upset at the dreary, horrible singing at the church. Said something to his dad, who was a deacon. And his dad said, if you can do any better, you know, then go for it. And so he wrote his first hymn that afternoon, came back for evening worship, and they sang it. And singing English-speaking hymns was born. Um, there were a couple Baptists who had experimented it with a little bit. Um, they would, you know, a guy named John Rippon introduced the idea. He was a predecessor of Spurgeon. Eventually, Spurgeon took over the church that John Rippon um, preached at. Rippon included a lot of Ann Steele's hymns in his collection. He started singing one hymn at communion, and that was regarded as pretty scandalous and produced a lot of controversy and lots of books and papers on both sides of that debate a little before Isaac Watts. But Isaac Watts is really the, the main guy. And Anne Steele was influenced by Watts. She loves Watts. As a matter of fact, at one of her hymns, she talks about seraphic Watts and wishing that she could you know, write hymns like he does. So she read Watts. She liked Watts. She grew up 20 miles away from him. And we don't know that they ever met. But she grew up in um, what's a kind of church that's called Particular Baptists. In, in Baptist churches, there's two branches. There's the particular Baptist and the general Baptist. And it has to do with their view of the atonement. The particular Baptists are you know, Calvinists um, and even hyper-Calvinists who believe very strongly in limited atonement. Unfortunately, they also believe that because of that, you shouldn't offer the gospel to everybody. So they don't really believe in evangelism. Now, Ann Steele actually bucks that a little bit in some of her hymns. But, you know, for instance, when we sing a hymn like, Come Ye Sinners, that was not a hymn that they felt you should address to unbelievers. You should only address the gospel invitation to believers who had been convicted of their sin. Until people were convicted of their sin by the preaching of the law, you shouldn't offer the gospel to them. That's one of the interesting kind of particular Baptist traits. I don't believe in that myself, if you're wondering. I don't think that's a good point. But she comes from that tradition. Particular Baptists, so Particular Baptists are Reformed, they're Calvinist, but they don't generally believe in the free offer of the gospel. And they also tend to be very introspective about the issue of assurance. You know, um, if, you're, if you're not Reformed, there, you know, there's, a, there's kind of a, a particular dilemma that you can have with your conscience, which is, have I truly invited Jesus into my heart? And did I really mean it? And a lot of people that have grown up in, in those kind of churches, typical evan- evangelical churches, really wrestle with that. How am I sure that I really invited Jesus into my heart and I really meant it? Because I got to really mean it if it's going to work. And so there, people can have a real tormented conscience about that thing. In reformed churches, it's a little different because you don't believe, and Ann Steele, for instance, didn't believe that she was saved because she invited Jesus into her heart. She believed she was saved because in his sovereign grace, he changed her heart. But there's still a place where the conscience could become tormented in reform circles, and that is how do I know that I'm a genuine Christian and not a hypocrite? Not somebody who's just been enlightened but has never been converted. And she deals a lot with that in her hymns. So th- that's kind of how her particular Baptist influence, you know, you see that a lot when she's singing in songs like Dear Refuge of My Weary. So a lot of times you'll see her crying out wondering if she really is a Christian. And for her, the way that she responds to suffering is an important part of her wrestling with that question. She really believes what Peter says, that you should count trials as pure, pure joy because they come and they test your faith and they help show whether it's genuine or not. She very much has that perspective because she thinks there is danger of being a gospel hypocrite. and. It would, you know, it'd be worse to be wrong about whether you're a Christian than it would be to suffer trials. It's a little different perspective. You don't hear people say that very much. Thank you for the trials because this will help assure me that I really am a Christian. Um, as a matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, if you don't suffer, you should have. You really don't have a right to consider yourself a legitimate child of God. If you're a true child of God, you should suffer. So, you know, that's a little different than the way modern evangelicals think about these things. Um, So she grows up in England, kind of in the countryside, in the Cotswolds. If any of y'all are Jane Austen fans, I find when I read um, Anne Steele and read some of her letters, there's this book, um, In Trouble and Sorrow, has a great little 50-page biography of her where it includes a number of her letters. And I have the um, kind of the treasure of my library. I have her two volumes, Complete Works, that has all her letters in it. Um, She very much comes across like a Jane Austen, like an Emma character. Her sister got married, and it was a really unhappy marriage, and um, Anne had a number of opportunities to get married, a number of proposals, and she turned them all down. There is this story that circulates, which probably has some basis, in fact, that when she was um, engaged to be married the day before, her fiancé drowned. It does seem that this guy was a suitor of hers, and that he did drown, but it wasn't the day before, and it probably didn't, like, destroy her life like you might think it did because she doesn't even really write about it in her diary other than just to mention it in passing. Um, But it's interesting, you know, there's this guy, Benjamin Bedham, who is a, um, you know, a a very important hymn writer as well. And um, I want to read you this thing here. It's her... um, She starts out, you know, being really influenced... Oh, yeah. All right, here, here's Benjamin Bedum. He got, he got this. He, this is his marriage proposal, which we have. So we know that, you know, the one guy that was pursuing her who died wasn't her only opportunity to get married. But she turned down Benjamin Bedum, and he was a very important pastor, busy pastor um, who lived near her. And he writes this, Dear Miss, pardon the boldness which prompts me to lay these few lines at your feet. If continued thoughts of you may be considered as arguments of love, surely I experience the passion. If the greatness of a person's love will make up for the want of wit, wealth, and beauty, then may I humbly lay claim to your favor. It's very much like Jane Austen isn't it, because it's the same era, and it's the same area, you know, near Bath, and where a lot of her things are set. Since I had the happiness of seeing you, how often have I thought of Milton's beautiful description of Eve, book eight, line 471. And then he quotes, so lovely fair, then what seemed fair in all the world seemed now mean or in her summed up, in her contained, and in her looks which from that time infused sweetness into my heart unfelt before. Madam, give me leave to tell you that these words speak the very experience of my soul, nor do I find it possible to forbear loving you. Would you but suffer me to come and lay before you these dictates of a confused mind, which cannot be represented by a trembling hand and pen? Would you but permit me to cast myself at your feet and tell me how mu- tell you how much I love? Oh, what an easement might you thereby afford to a burdened spirit. At the same time, give me an opportunity of declaring more fully that I am in sincerity your devoted servant, Benjamin Bedham. But she turned that down. No. <laughs> it's a pretty good letter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he recovered and married somebody else. Um, so, anyway, her mom died when she was two. She had a stepmom. It seems they had quite a bit of conflict, especially early on. seems kind of like the wicked stepmom. Eventually, they were able to reconcile somewhat. And eventually, her stepmom um, kind of set aside a special room for her with a fireplace and decorate it really nice where she could just, you know, have peace and quiet to work on her poetry. Um, I think... You know, she probably didn't marry for two reasons. One, the bad experience her sister had, and they were very close. And also, um, a sense that she might could be more useful to God do it, writing poetry than she could be as a busy pastor's wife. Her dad was a pastor, but a pastor who never got paid for it. He was a, a very um wealthy timber merchant and he didn't he also pastored this little particular Baptist church, but he never got paid for that seems like he didn't really need to but he was very busy and she helped a lot with the work of the ministry Um, and so I think she knew firsthand what the wife of a pastor would entail and I think was encouraged and felt a call to write these poems and you know she again like these Jane Austen movies I mean she really enjoys sitting in the drawing room you know playing games and she would like make up these poetry rhyming games that she would play with her sister. she enjoyed witty conversation and she was just unconvinced that she needed to get married, which was pretty unusual in her day. In a lot of ways, she really does kind of strike out on her own path. Matter of fact, when she publishes her hymns, she publishes it under a pseudonym because it was, pretty, it was pretty audacious for a woman to publish a book of hymns to be used in worship. You know, the, the particular Baptists are very conservative when it comes to those sorts of things, they still had women and men sit in separate sides of the church. Which you know, basically all the English churches did at this point in time, and so the idea that a woman would compose songs that they would use in public corporate worship was a pretty, pretty um, audacious sort of sort of thing. So, anyway, she um, she did she did live a pretty difficult life health wise. Um, she seems to have had malaria. She grew up near a swamp, and when you read in her diary her description of her symptoms, which recur seems that she had malaria um, and suffered with that. Um, So finally, you know, this is the words describing her death. She says this, Caleb Evans, who's one of her um, editors, says, having been confined to her chamber for some nine years, last nine years of her life, she was sick in bed and was an invalid. And it said, having been confined to her chamber for some nine years, she had long waited with Christian dignity for the hour of her departure and when the time came she welcomed its arrival and though her feeble body was excruciated with pain her mind was perfectly serene she took a most affectionate leave of her weeping friends around her and at length the happy moment of her dismission arriving she closed her eyes and with these words upon her dying lips i know that my redeemer liveth gently fell asleep in jesus um i like i like this little line um it's in the, under number two. It's the end of that little paragraph. There, we have her father's diary as well. And the day that her poems were taken to the publisher, he wrote this in his diary. Today Nanny, that's what, that's what everybody called her, Nanny, which Wendy likes because she calls her grandmother Nanny. So, today Nanny sent part of her composition to London to be printed. I entreat a gracious God who enabled and stirred her up to such a work to direct in it and bless it for the good of many. I pray God to make it useful and keep her humble. And I would say that He made it; He kept He made it very useful. Um, her hymns really um, are remarkable in a number of ways, and I will um, tell you a couple of those things. Any thoughts about her life, or questions about her life? She's pretty; she's obviously a pretty studied woman. She did go to school into a good boarding school for a while. Um, Probably because, you know, her family was fairly well off. So she had a a good education, you know, better than a lot of people, you know, that she was around, I think. Again, she comes across kind of like Emma, you know, is is probably smarter than a lot of the silly girls that she hung out with. Um, All right. um, I said, you know, in 1760 is when her two volumes of her poems came out. When she died, there was a third volume of her poems, the two volumes, 1760 volumes, she arranged and edited herself. And so that's interesting because you can kind of look at the first poem and the last poem and see why did she want these to be the beginning and the ending, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, in 1914, this guy Amos Wells says this, she was the first woman writer whose hymns came to be used, largely used in hymn books and is the greatest Baptist hymn writer. Um, and a lot of you all come from Baptist backgrounds, so I always think you know, people should know more about, about Anne Steele. That's why I went up to the Baptist Seminary and gave a lecture on Ann Steele because most people there don't know who she is. Um, Two hundred years, you know, ago, her hymns were very popular. In 1808, this is just one example. There was an Episcopal Church in Boston that put out its own hymnal for for its own church. It has what 152 hymns in the volume. Fifty nine of the hymns are by Ann Steele. Now that, I don't know if you know much about Baptists and Episcopalians in the early 1800s. They, they are very different social classes. They don't really interact with each other very much at all. The Presbyterians are kind of in between those two groups. But Baptists and Episcopalians don't have a lot to do with each other. Baptists are seen as kind of more uncouth, frontier kind of people. Um, Episcopalians are more refined. And particularly a, a, you know, a big, important official church in Boston to have a hymnal that had a third of the hymns are hers is really remarkable. Um, and you know I have this, this other book by this guy, Herod Newby Barrage, called Baptist Hymn Writers and Their Hymns, from 1888, and he says that over a hundred of her hymns can be found in modern hymnals. So, in the late 1800s, a hundred of her hymns were, um, were used, and I, I forget exactly how many hymns she wrote. Wait. I can tell real quick. Did, did I write? 144. And a hundred of them are in use. That's remarkable. That's a way higher percentage than people like Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts. Okay? So she may not have written many, though 144 is pretty, pretty good. But you have to know, most hymn writers, except for like Wesley and Watts, Bonar, a um, couple that I can name, most hymn writers are known for one hymn. And so, you know, a hundred of her hymns in widespread use points to her significance and the way her hymns resonate with people. I think that one of the reasons her hymns cross denominational lines and resonate with people across so many different denominations in a day when that wasn't done very much is because her hymns, more than Watts and Wesley, reflect the heart of the psalms. They reflect confusion. They reflect the psalms. Isaac Watts translated a number of the psalms, okay, 150 psalms. He did, I think, 133 of them. There were 17 of them that he thought were too Jewish and he couldn't get Christian joy into them. Okay? Um, so he, do, he, he really tries to Christianize the Psalms very explicitly. And I'm not opposed to that, but he can't find Christ in 17 of them and doesn't think that we should really be able to sing them because they, you can't get Christian joy out of them. One of those is Psalm 88. Psalm 88 ends in the NIV. The last verse says, darkness is my closest friend. And it ends that way doesn't end with a happy resolution, okay? Ann Steele does 30-some hymns out of the 150, or 30-some of the psalms out of 150, and she does that one. She does Psalm 88. She she doesn't end quite as stark as the text does, but at least she does it. Um, Charles Wesley, because of his idea of Christian perfectionism, you know, John and Charles had this belief that if you... You could get to a point through a second baptism experience where you wouldn't consciously sin anymore. Neither of them claimed it for themselves, but they claimed that they knew people that had achieved this experience. They called it Christian perfection. Because of that, Wesley, Charles and John Wesley's papers were destroyed after they died. It's very difficult to write a biography of them because their early biographers, who strongly believed in that doctrine, destroyed anything that might point out how they struggled. And in Charles Wesley's hymns, he really never goes there. He writes 6,000 hymns, but he never really approaches lament. But Anne Steele is full of lament in her hymns. And the Psalms, there are more Psalms about lament than there are any other category. So I think that, you know, for English speaking Christians, you see, when she's writing hymns, the idea of English hymns is very new. What people have been singing for 200 years are only the Psalms. So they find her hymns probably a little more in touch with what they've been doing and maybe better for expressing the full range of Christian emotions. So, Thoughts on that? Or I'll, I'll tell you a couple other things about her hymns, and we'll look at some because I know this is, gets kind of boring just talking about her. Um, here's some cool things about her hymns. And she's not the only one to do all these things. But if you think about what does Ann Steele really contribute to the hymn the canon of hymns or the tradition of hymns. These are some of the things that I think we can learn from. Um, one is a, a real intensity of language and emotion. And you see that. Now, you can look at um, this little thing, this Steele's hymns, but most of these I stuck in. I kind of put little quotes in here. Um, hymn four is one that I, that it's this big, huge, long one. Okay. I took this, I took a couple verses from this for this hymn we sing, um, O Love Incomprehensible. Now that O oh, Love and Comprehensible and in the first couple of verses are by a hymn by Augusta Coplady. But I took a couple of the other verses from Ann Steele, from this hymn, which has something like 30-some verses. Yeah, quite a lot. And you may wonder, did, did anybody really sing all these verses? And the answer is probably not. They didn't always sing. Hymns were both read for devotional pleasure as well as sung. And him you know, when you wrote a work a book of your hymns and you published it, you would expect hymn book editors to maybe take an excerpt of that. Lot, most of Charles Wesley's hymns are excerpted from longer hymns, you know, 20-some verses, and you know the, the hymn book editor will pick five or six, something like that. Anyway, but one of the things you notice, if you just kind of look through this one, there's a couple of places where she'll have something in parentheses and an exclamation mark. And her hymns are really unusual in that, but she uses that device a lot. You see about halfway down, God's only son, stupendous grace. You know, it's a little, little aside, but it's like, you know, exclamation point. So there's this real intensity of language. She's not, see, Isaac Watts is much more refined and mellow. She's, she's much more, you know, passionate. And you can see, you know, um, when I survey the Wonders Cross, one of Isaac Watts' um, famous hymns, I'm sure she knew that hymn, but the way that she takes on that same idea in, in this point here, here's how she describes, kind of uses that same idea, but she says it differently. She says this, and it's in under intensity of, of feeling and language. Can I survey this scene of woe where mingling grief and wonder flow? See, so she's kind of picking up even on Watts' language. And yet my heart unmoved remain insensible to love or pain. Now, how does Isaac Watts say it? You know, when he is all—he's about when I calmly reflect on the cross. There's sort of a rational response. It doesn't make any sense to not give God everything. But she's talking about how can I not be moved, and how can I not? You know, her language is much more intensified, which is which is good. It's one of the reasons I think her hymns are are getting new popularity because people you know, are interested in passion. And um, she really has that in spades. So you see this kind of thing, this unparalleled disgrace, right? We saying arraigned at Pilate's impious bar. Unparalleled disgrace. You know, she can't let a phrase go by sometimes without adding her kind of exclamation, almost just an emotive outburst. And you, you look through other people's hymns, you don't find that. Parentheses, you don't find very many exclamation mark, especially in the middle of a line. Very unusual in hymns. Another thing is she's really great at using oxymorons and paradoxical statements. Um, You see that here with this spotless innocence appears in guilt's detested place. That's that's paradoxical. Here's another one. Um, "'Tis finished now aloud, he cries. No more the law requires. And now, and there's that exclamation again, amazing sacrifice." The Lord of life expires. She loves those kind of phrases. The Lord of life expires. And there is something about, about you know that as, as the craft of hymn writing and the craft of writing worship songs. That's, I think, an important lesson. Um, a good hymn, unlike poetry, you understand what it means the first time you read it. You don't really have to scratch your head as it's going by you understand what it says. Yet, if you continue to resonate, or continue to meditate on it, it continues to, to fill you, and you find new wonder in it. And she does that a lot, and these paradoxical statements are really key to that. Instead of just saying, you know, I mean, there's just such a picturesque way in a short phrase, and it's the kind of thing that invites reflection, little different than a dogmatic theological statement. She says things in a way that provokes wonder. She's never content for you just to know the truth. She wants you to wonder at the truth. All right, turn over. Along the same line, she uses questions all the time. Her hymns are full of questions because questions probe more deeply than statements can. And Watson in his you know, book talks a lot about that. It's really helpful. And here's a good example, a couple examples. One of these is from Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, which some of you may know. And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? Another example. What less than thy almighty word can raise my heart from earth and dust and bid me close. That should be bid me close. Bid me cleave to thee, my Lord, my life, my treasure, and my trust. But you, if you re- start just reading through her hymns, they're full of questions. She's also... Again, now, living as long after her as we do, um, we don't know that this is unusual. But in her day, to use love language to express relationship to God was not done. Now, it wasn't totally shocking because the standard way that people interpreted the Song of Solomon was not as marital love between a real man and a real woman, but as an allegory for Christ and his love for the church. That's how Spurgeon interprets it. He regards anybody that doesn't interpret that way as kind of, you know, less than spiritual. That's how all the Puritans regarded it, okay? And so, the idea of, you know, the love language used for the relationship between the believer and Christ is well established, and yet people hadn't brought that into their hymns yet, except for one guy, um, Count Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf is a German pietist guy who has big influence on um, the Wesleys and the um, he starts the Moravians, but he actually goes so far with it that it gets it gets really weird. <laughs> yeah, it does, and that's why we don't sing many of his hymns at all. Um, but she she does this, and Watson, you know, in his book, he says that she had great influence, especially on female hymn writers after her. Female hymn writers always seem more free to use this kind of language, and, um, and she's very influential on, on hymn writers that follow her in the next century. In the next century, a lot more people do it, but she kind of starts that ball rolling. Here's a good example. I yield to thy dear conquering arms. I yield my captive soul. Oh, let thy all subduing charms my inmost powers control. You know, it's very strong. You know, we talked today about, you know, we don't need these, you know, boyfriend, Jesus is my boyfriend songs. But, you know, and I, I know that, that that's a legitimate concern. And yet, there's good biblical basis and good kind of church history basis for, you know, understanding God's relationship with the believer as a love relationship. It's actually the important thing. Um, she also has a strong belief that the longing for heaven puts all other longings in their place. You see that a lot in her hymns um, where she really wants the longing for heaven to, to capture her heart in such a way that other longings do not take over her. Um, that's, you know, the one above is an example of that. She's got a lot of hymns, actually, quite a lot of hymns about the conflict between worldly pleasures and real pleasure, and I think that's something that she herself struggled with. She really enjoyed witty conversation and at least at some point going to balls and that sort of thing, but eventually came to regard that stuff as less than spiritual. But she still struggles with it a lot. She's very honest about human frailty and weakness. This is a very important aspect of her hymns, probably the thing I mention the most when I talk about her. The first and last hymns in her works, in this um, basically dwell on human weakness. That's how she starts her collection. That's how she ends her collection. Her first hymn is, is worth listening to. Um, she says, Almighty author of my frame, to thee my vital powers belong. Thy praise, delightful, glorious theme, exclamation, demands my heart, my life, my tongue. So that she's saying, you know, you deserve my praise. And yet the first thing she says... Um, my heart, my life, my tongue are thine. Oh, be thy praise, their blessed employ. But may my song with angels join, nor sacred awe forbid the joy. The glories, the seraphic lyre, on all its strings attempt in vain. Then how shall mortals dare aspire in thought to try the unequal strain? So she's saying, we were made to praise you, but how can we, how can we possibly really praise you the way you deserve? And so she starts the collection, you know, this last stanza. Great God, accept the humble praise and guide my heart and guide my tongue while to thy name I trembling raise the grateful though unworthy song. That's, the, that's what she wants to frame this collection of hymns. She, her firm conviction is that this is an unworthy song. She's basically been pushed into publishing because when she read these poems for her friends and family, they found them useful and really, you know, but she's also apologizing for being so bold as to publish, which was pretty common. Usually, almost every book in this period starts with an author's apology, and that's what they call it, the author's apology. You have to apologize for why you would be so brash as to publish something. So she she fits in with that. If only that happened now, I know, yeah, we probably need some more of that. The The last hymn is titled, this is her title, Human Frailty. That's her last, last hymn, and it goes this way. O God of mercy, thou that hearest prayer, let these poor breathings reach thy gracious ear. She's referring to her whole collection of hymns. Weak, impotent, and blind, to thee I fly. O may thy grace my every want supply. Thy powerful grace, which can only can impart conviction, life, and vigor to my heart. Illuminate my yet-be-clouded eyes. These empty trifles teach me to despise. There's her conflict with earthly pleasure. Let nobler cares my time, my thoughts employ, and bid my spirit pant for real joy. Be thy almighty arm, my strength, my guide, and never from thy precepts let me slide. Let thy kind influence make my future days a life of pleasure and a life of praise. So anyway, so that's, that's very important to her. And, you know, there's no doubt, you know, a connection between the fact that almost every great hymn writer was a great sufferer and often a great sufferer physically. Isaac Watts, for instance, went over to somebody's house at one point, friends, and got sick and stayed there for something like 15 years, sleeping, you know, living on their couch in their living room. That's kind of interesting. We'll talk about Isaac Watts when we get to him. He's quite the interesting character. Um, so she's really honest. And, um, and, and I, what I like, which almost seems like kind of a postmodern theme is the idea that language really can't do what we want it to do. She, she's full of that, about the inability of words to really express what we need to express. All right, a couple other things. She has great creativity in the names by which she addresses God. So many of her hymns start with a striking name for God, not necessarily even a biblical name. Some of them are, but most of them are more creative, certainly in touch, in t- keeping with biblical themes. Um, but I just pulled a few of these and I could have pulled lots of them. These are all first lines from her hymns. My maker and my king, thou lovely source of true delight, dear refuge of my weary soul, almighty author of my frame, Lord of my life, eternal source of joys divine, great source of boundless power and grace, thou only sovereign of my heart, father of mercies in thy word. Come Thou desire of all thy saints, dear center of my best desires. She, she, she's full, full of this. And so her hymns have the effect, so many of them, of her starting out saying, here's who you are, and, it, and, it, and, it's, and she uses a phrase that really in, is, is rich and will repay meditation for a while. And her hymns really are like meditations. This is who you are. She states it. Then she struggles to believe it. You know, dear refuge, of my weary soul, yet it doesn't seem like you're being much of a refuge right now. And yet, I can't let you go. Where else can I go? And finally, she usually comes back to kind of bleeding, you know, limping, yet trusting. Does that all the time. And I think that's actually a very helpful thing to think about, even in thinking about our own devotional life, is to, to, to not be content with the same old addresses that we use for God. You know, it's so funny sometimes, you know, you hear people pray and, you know, most people basically address God the same way whenever they pray, you know. If they've been raised in certain churches, they're going to say, Father God, Father God, you know. If they're raised in other churches, it's Lord or Father or, you know, Lord Jesus. I mean, but, but rarely do people have much variety in the way they address God. Contrast that with the Psalms, contrast that with the prayers in the Bible contrast that with Anne Steele's hymns. I think she teaches us something helpful here. That um, we really do need to be meditating on the character of God and considering who He is in all kinds of facets. The Bible is filled with lots of different metaphors to help us understand who God is. We really are impoverished when we limit ourselves to just a couple of them. Even when they're biblical ones. So... And then um, I talked about this. She's a voice of lament um, in the, the midst of real suffering. She's also a voice calling out for assurance. Um, and she's a voice longing for a transforming gaze of Christ's spirit beauty. Do I got time to talk about those three things real quick? Uh, I think I've talked about suffering. This is a great hymn for that. But she has lots of other ones. Look at this one I put on here. You might not have ever... Um, Written. this this one was traditionally understood to be the hymn she wrote right after her fiance drowned it seems that that probably isn't the case but when i survey life's varied scene but this is still a good example of the way she deals with suffering and it's on this sandsteels hymns the first one here when i survey life's varied scene amid the darkest hours sweet rays of comfort shine between and thorns are mixed with flowers lord teach me to adore thy hand from whence my comforts flow and let me in this desert land a glimpse of Canaan know. So, but she only really hopes for a glimpse. She has no illusions that she's going to experience the full heavenly joy here. Is health and ease my happy share? Oh, may I bless my God. Thy kindness let my songs declare and spread thy praise abroad. While such delightful gifts as these are kindly dealt to me, be all my hours of health and ease devoted, Lord, to thee. In griefs and pains thy secret word, dear solace of my soul, exclamation, celestial comforts can afford, and all their power control. When present sufferings pain my heart, or future terrors rise, and light and hope almost depart from these dejected eyes, thy powerful word supports my hope, sweet cordial of the mind. You know what a cordial is? It's like a little alcoholic drink that you would keep that would kind of warm, warm you. Okay and bears my fainting spirit up and bids me wait resigned very much about the importance of suffering silently and humbly under God's hand and not fighting against it and oh whatever of earthly bliss thy sovereign hand denies accept it at thy throne of grace let this petition rise give me a calm sorry not clam give me a calm a thankful heart from every murmur free the blessings of thy grace impart and let me live to thee Let the sweet hope that thou art mine, my path of life attend, thy presence through my journey shine and bless its happy end. So she's saying, let the truth of the gospel affect my feelings, you know, but she's not telling us to pretend that the feelings aren't there. I find that very helpful. She also, you got to go. Yep, good to see you. Thanks for coming. Um, She also has this idea about assurance and. You know, the Calvinists, you know, believe, at least the best of them, believe that there's a difference between being a Christian and being sure you're a Christian. And Calvinists believe that if you really are a Christian, you won't lose your salvation. But they, at least the best of them, though, in a lot of Baptist traditions, this has been lost today. She was very aware, though, the older Baptist tradition understands this distinction, that you can be saved and still have a lot of doubts about whether you're saved. That you're not saved by the confidence you have that you're saved. That you can be saved and still doubt you're saved. It's a great blessing to not doubt it. Hey, dude. I have all these books for you. Um, look at these for a minute. Yes, just wait for a minute or two and you can look at some of these things. Oh, what is that? Oh, yeah, that's that one that you got. Yeah, from your aunt or? Yeah, that's cool. All right, yeah, hold on. You gotta go. Amoria, uh, good to see you. Bye. Um, so assurance, you know, she understands assurance to be a great blessing. The Puritans taught about this a lot, that the power to live the Christian life is connected to how sure you are that God loves you. And so one of their motivations, they talked about a lot for avoiding sin and trying to fight against sin, was it would cloud your sense of God's love. They didn't think that if you were a real Christian, if you fell into sin, that you would lose your salvation but they felt that you would lose your sense of God's love, you would lose your confidence that you were a real Christian or not a hypocrite, and therefore it would make you really impotent, because then instead of serving the Lord, you'd be trying to get back into his good graces, and you'd be kind of thinking he was always frowning at you. So assurance is a really important issue, and she deals with it and deals very honestly with the struggles for assurance. She understands that assurance is a gift of God, The Puritans used to talk about the assurance as God's kiss, that there are times when He gives us real sense of assurance that is a gift. It's It's not something that we should expect for at the same degree all the time. But she also understands that we have a role and a responsibility to keep attending upon the Word, which she means continue to go to church, continue to be in the Word, even if you don't feel like it's giving you anything. Um, because it's through the word, it's through prayer, it's through um, worship that God is going to speak to you generally and convince you that you're His child. So, but she recognizes that that's a struggle, and when we are struggling with that, it really can consume our lives. So, assurance is she's a lot of stuff about that, and then finally, she's this voice longing for a transforming gaze of Christ's beauty. You probably heard me talk about this idea that we're transformed by gazing upon Christ's beauty, not just by our willpower. Um, Thou lovely source of true delight is a great one that brings that out, very much in line with Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if she read Jonathan Edwards, but um, he develops these ideas a lot, and his books were available, you know, in England when she was around. Um, So she has this idea, unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. That, you know, if, you know, God, you're going to have to draw me to yourself by showing me who you really are. And as I see your beauty, it will capture me, it will change me. That's based in part on a verse in 2 Corinthians where it says that we're changed from one degree of glory to another as we gaze upon the Lord's glory. That's what the Catholic mystics mean when they talk about the beatific vision. Have you ever heard that idea? Um, Where you know, a lot of the mystics just long to just gaze upon Christ in his face. And that's one of the reasons they think that monastic service is a good thing to do because it allows you to try and just approach that beatific vision. She longs for that beatific vision, but she doesn't think she needs to go to a nunnery to search for it. Anyway, that's all I got. Thoughts? Questions? What strikes you about her hymns? Why do you find them helpful? Mm-hmm. Is that, does that beatific vision have to do with like, people like seeing Jesus uh, and in different things. You know what I mean? Like yeah, the, the, the way in, talks, in a lot of Catholic tradition, yeah, had, like the nun bun. Probably like a popular, yeah. diluted, distorted version of it. Yeah. yeah. Part of it, part of it is, um, you know, there's a long tradition in the Middle Ages of yeah. books of miracles of the saints. And... Um, you know, so people are always kind of looking for these miracles, either the stigmata or being able to heal people. And the Catholic Church still says that they have to be able to document you know, a miracle for you to be you know, regarded as a saint. So um, I think it creates a culture in which people are looking for kind of unusual things and thinking that God's behind it. You know, some of those sightings are used as, as evidence of miracles. You know, because in particular, the saint who appears or, you know, something is... Often a saint's connected with it, so that's probably part of it, too. A lot of, lot of collections of miracle stories in the Middle Ages, you know, that are popular, that kind of float around. How did you start talking about miracles? Oh, he was asking me about, you know, like when people think they see Mother Teresa in a bun or, you know, a lot of those kind of things that are kind of silly. Does that connect to the idea that we should look for a picture of Jesus to be transformed? There might be some weak connection to that, I don't know. Probably has more to do with the fact that there's too much superstition in kind of the popular piety, especially of a lot of third world Roman Catholic countries. Is this helpful? Hear about Anstiel and don't like her hymns? Well, you know, her hymns are very much in use in the end of the 1800s, but they disappear after that. There are a couple theological movements in American evangelicalism that probably help explain that. One is the Higher Life Movement. The Higher Life Movement says if you let go and let God and perfectly trust God, that you'll be an overcomer, that you'll be a victorious Christian, that you won't struggle. Her hymns don't fit that model at all, but so many of the hymn books from the late 1800s when her hymns and their popularity really reaches its peak, um, in the next 30, 40 years, a lot of what gets put out are these little paperback hymns that are very moralistic. A lot of them um, deal with this higher life teaching. Um, Fanny Crosby's hymns are very different than Ann Steele. You know, Blessed Assurance She's not struggling with assurance. She believes that if you're a Christian, you have perfect assurance. And if you don't have it, all you need to do is yield yourself to Jesus, and you can have it. Um, Take my life and let it be holy. You know, a sense of... you know, There's not the sense of struggling with indwelling sin. So her hymns don't really fit what a lot of people understand Christianity to be in the late 1800s, early 1900s. That's a, that's a big part of it, I think. And so by the time... You know, now when people are kind of saying, well, that, that kind of, some of that teaching, that higher life teaching is hogwash, doesn't fit the Bible. Well, people have forgotten about her hymns because we haven't sung them for 100 years. Um, but I find when people read these, they go, man, we need to sing this. But the only one of her hymns that's lasted in the Presbyterian hymnal is a hymn about the Word of God. And probably the only reason is because there's not very many good, good hymns about the Word of God. There's just not very many good ones. So that's probably the only reason that that one is, has lasted. Yeah, And it's true in Baptist symbols, too. I don't think there's very many, of if any, of hers in the modern Baptist symbols. Other thoughts? Questions? No pictures of Anne Steele exist. But this is where she lived, you know. And it still looks... Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> There's a picture here. She lives not too far from Salisbury, if anybody's been to the Salisbury Cathedral. Yeah, well I don't think it's about Salisbury Hill, but there's a cathedral in Salisbury, um, and she's not far from there. Um, She. um, There's a picture of her house in here too. Yeah, that's the house that she, you can still go and visit the house. And all her papers are at a university near there. I know, wouldn't that be great fun? Well, they they do those sorts of things. Yeah, this is another picture of the house. So it wasn't shabby. You know? (laughs) Here's her grave. It's at Broughton Parish Church. When did she die? Um, 1778. She was 61 years old. Um... Yeah, this is cool. This is, um, here's her, um, this is what it says on her tombstone. Who knew him loved, who loved him most deplore, but parting pangs shall rend the heart no more when Jesus comes to wake. Sorry, that's not it. Here's the inscription. Silent the lyre and dumb the tuneful tongue that sung on earth her great Redeemer's praise. But now in heaven she joins the angelic song in more harmonious, more exalted lays. Yep. She goes in a letter she wrote to her father when she published her hymn. She said, "If I, while I am sleeping in the silent grave, my thoughts are of any real benefit to the meanest of the servants of my God. Be the, all the praise ascribed to the Almighty Giver of all grace. So, anyway. I commend to you Ann Steele and her hymns. <laughs>